Good morning. Part of me would love to say I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, but there's a part of me that's honest that says I can't wait this bit to be over. But we're, we're grateful to have the opportunity to preach and to share God's word. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, and, and we're grateful even just to be in the area. Uh, we moved into just outside of Kiltegan on the 15th of September. And the first church we went to on Sunday morning was this place right here. And, and, and you've welcomed us with open arms and we're grateful and we're thankful. Um, we, we do work for the Faith Mission, my wife and I. And just there uh, yesterday, we had a, a pop-up Christmas bookstall in Bolting Glass. And historically, that has not went well. People just didn't seem to know about it or didn't seem to care. But this year, with the, the, the shop front that Rural Revival has sort of taken over, we had upwards to 40 or 50 people just come in and browse the bookstall. And do you know what went? Not the Christmas gifts, not the gimmicks. The books. The books. The relevant Christian literature and I'm just thrilled to pieces about it. So thank you for your prayers. We had reported about that at the rally not so long ago. And you must have been praying because God moved. So thank you for that. We're going to look at Ruth and chapter 1 this morning in, in the church Bible. I believe it's page 267. Uh, page 267. Um, Ruth and chapter 1. And let's just read that together. Ruth in chapter 1, we'll read all 22 verses this morning. Ruth in chapter 1 begins with verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the land of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there with her two um, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who would become husbands? 
Return home, my daughters, I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more better for me than for you, because the Lord's hand had gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, they, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said, or she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And the Lord will bless the public reading of his word, I'm sure. Let's just pause for a moment of prayer. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word again. And Father, we thank you for, for this place and for this group of people. Father, I, I'm grateful, Lord, that in this place there's an open Bible present in this church, in this building. And that tells me that this group of people are very concerned about what you have to say to them. Because instead of a vase of flowers or some flower arrangement, they have the open word of God there. Father, I thank you for creation. I thank you for flowers and flower arranging and those who have the gift to make things look lovely. But Father, I'm grateful for the word of God all the more. So this morning as we get into it, this morning as we get into your word, Father, we ask that we would just put on the shelf those things that are on our minds. As we came through those doors this morning, we came through with certain things going through our minds. Father, this morning, right now, in this moment, allow us to just put them on the shelf. Allow us to just put them on the back burner and focus on only you this morning. On what you have to say to us this morning through your word. Father, I just I would ask for your help this morning because this is not easy. It's not straightforward. But Lord, you can bless us. So Father, touch my tongue, Lord. Father, remove any thoughts that are not of you. And Father, allow 
only the thoughts that are of you to be easily and quickly remembered. Father, we look to your help, and Father, at the end, we'll give you all the praise and all the glory for you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was just thinking about this passage of Scripture, and it's, it's quite special in one regard, because the last time I heard it read publicly was at our wedding. It was Ruth in chapter 1. And I was just thinking upon this passage of scripture and I knew this is what the Lord had for me to share because it's the only time where an unequal yoke works out. But let's just, let, let's just introduce, our, introduce our message this morning and, and it's the fact that life is no sprint. Life is no sprint. And this is true. It's, it, it's not a run to the finish. It's not a race to the finish. Life is not... Let's get straight to the finish line and get out of here. No, life is more like a, a long, drawn-out affair. A little bit like a marathon. You don't sit and wait in a marathon and, and, and use the stopwatch and wait there for 30 seconds. A marathon takes time. It takes strategy, forward planning. And, it's, and if you ever have taken part in a marathon, you know it's hard to forecast how you finish if you started a marathon. You could have a good start and finish poorly. You could keep a really steady rhythm, a good steady pace and finish last. It seems that nothing is given with a marathon and that's a little bit like life. Nothing's a given, nothing's certain. And we all know that marathons take more than just turning up on the day and going for a run. It takes preparation. You've got to put the hard work in. You've got to get a diet in place. No more chocolate bars. No more sweet stuff. It's just broccoli and chicken. And you've got to do the strength and conditioning training as well. You've got to hit the gym. Hit the treadmill. And again, it's the same with life. Before we're even born, there's a lot of hard work that has to happen before we get here. And I'm not just referring to the hard work of our grandparents and our parents that have ensured that we have a good start in life. Rather, the plans that God has set in place during eternity past. Plans that are meant to prosper us and protect us. And that's a little bit like the course of a marathon, the allotted path that the designers of that marathon have chosen, including the rules of a marathon that they've put in place. And these things can look like restrictions, barriers, but they're there to allow for an even playing field and to keep the athletes safe. But what if we left the course? What if we went off piste as it were? What if we wanted to go our own way during the course of a, mar of a marathon? Well, that's the climate we enter into this book with. We, we meet a family who do this exact same thing. They go off peace. They go off course. They leave that course. And that course was outlined for them by God. So I'm gonna, we're going to go through this passage. And it's going to be a little bit of a survey of this passage. Just applying and explaining as we go. Uh, I would love to get into this a little bit deeper than what I have. But you don't have all day. So... Let's just make the best of the time that we have. 
Let's look at the first two verses very briefly. They set the scene. In the days when the judges ruled between, um, there was a famine in the land. And this tells us that our story is set somewhere between 1300 BC and 1050 BC. And Bible historians have placed the book of Ruth somewhere around 1100 BC. But more than that, it tells us of a natural disaster as we start the story. A famine. And according to Bible scholars, the region of Bethlehem in Judah would have been prone to droughts and as such would have suffered famine. And famines in those times would have been no joke. You would have faced price inflation, robbery, social exploitation, agricultural collapse, migration, and at the very last, cannibalism. Not a fun time, especially for families. And in verse 2, we are introduced to one and we're given their names. And in the Hebrew culture, names are very significant. They're more than just a means of identifying one from another. Elimelech literally translated means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Their parents looked at the world around them and named their children accordingly. They were born into a good context. You could say a, a pleasant one where God was king. But look at the names that Elimelech and Naomi give to their children. It doesn't seem to be that case anymore. They, they name their kids Malon and Killian. And literally translated, they mean sickly and pining respectfully. Not great names. But these were given in a response to the spiritual climate they found their nation in. You see, they, were, they saw their nation's sinful sickness and they were pining for better days. And you're maybe thinking, Daniel, you're imagining this. You're just making this up. Well, look to the last verse of Judges. Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. It just seems to capture that idea very perfectly. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. I think we could look around our world right now and agree with Elimelech and Naomi. We can see our nation's sinful sickness and we're pining for better days. We turn on the news even very recently and we can see it at work. Sin at work wreaking havoc. And you wouldn't blame any family for leaving that kind of situation but look at what else they were leaving. They were leaving Bethlehem. And again, the name is important. Literally translated means the house of bread. And Judah, that means praise or worship. For the Hebrew people, these places were sacred and special. Not only were they hard fought and well earned. Read the, the, the book of Joshua for that. They were places that they had encountered God. Where the family of Israel, Jacob gave birth to 12 sons. Well, not him actually, his wives did. But that family extended to become a nation under God. You see, for fear of the famine or for fear of death, this family left the family home of faith. And so this family moves to 
to Moab in the hopes that they avoid tragedy. But then in verse 3, tragedy strikes. And strikes again in verse 4 and again in verse 5. The first tragedy is that Elimelech dies. And that is a tragedy. A family is left behind as a father dies. But again, think of the meaning of his name. My God is king. But Elimelech died outside of the family home of faith. He, he died with God removed from the throne of his life. He, fear was on the throne instead. And maybe today someone could relate to that. Faith hasn't defined your life in, in a long time. Only fear, only anxiety, only worry, only doubt. That's what's driving your life right now. Not faith, but fear. And these things can drive you away from God. Away from faith, away from church. Like it has this family. And the second tragedy is in the marriages of Malon and Killian. And weddings should be happy, joyous occasions. But for the Hebrew context we're reading this in, these marriages were anything but joyous. You see, in the book of Leviticus, God forbid marrying outside of the nation of Israel. Not for any racial or sectarian reasons, but the safeguard against wandering away from the true faith into idolatry. And that's what is at stake here. Right now, this family no longer had God on the throne, but fear, and fear can easily give way to idolatry, especially with these mixed marriages. And maybe this is where we are right now. We're on the cusp of allowing something, anything to direct and determine the course of our lives so long as it brings us joy or at the very least allows us to escape the emptiness of our sadness. A lot of people, when you meet them, they just seem so empty and so hollow. There's nothing, there's no joy overwhelming them. You, you meet people, what's their, and you ask them how they are. What, what, what's the normal expression? Not too bad. Not too bad. That doesn't sound optimistic or upbeat or happy or joyous. Just not too bad. The third tragedy that befalls this family is that Malon and Killian die. And economically, this is now a disaster for Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. In this ancient culture, women had no social status, no social security, no way of looking after themselves. Unless a male family member took them in, they were penniless and homeless. More than that, Naomi was numb. She's numb at this point. Not just numb out of grief, but numb spiritually. Remember, Malon and Killian mean sickly and pining. Uh, they named their children as a response uh, to the spiritual climate of their nation. They were grieved at their nation, but now sickly and pining are gone. They're numb to the spiritual climate of their nation. Numb. It didn't seem to matter anymore to pray. It didn't seem to matter anymore to 
grieve about the spiritual climate of our nation. Naomi is just numb and maybe, just maybe, one or two of us are numb this morning. Just numb to the spiritual climate of our world. You see, this story, I think, illustrates a backslider. Faith gives way to fear and that in turn makes room for idolatry to escape the emptiness and sooner or later spiritually speaking numbness settles in you become apathetic lost better but it doesn't have to end this way it doesn't in this story there's a hyper a happy ending as we near the end you see in verse 6 good news comes Naomi hears about food returning to Bethlehem. And look at the way the Bible records it. The Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And this word providing can also mean enabling. God enabled them. God blessed them. See, You see, Naomi could see that God is the only way to get to blessing. And so she's going to look for it. She's going to set out after it. She pursues the blessing of God at great personal cost. Here I'm reminded of something that Leonard Ravenhill once said. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill is an English uh, writer, uh, Bible writer and, and, and speaker. And this is what he said. An experience of God that costs you nothing, does nothing and is worth nothing. I'll say it again because it's worth saying twice. An experience of God that costs you nothing, does nothing, and is worth nothing. And what that means is this. While the Christian faith is free to join, free to start, as you stay, you'll find that there's a price to pay. There's something that You've kept from your old life outside of Christ that you're now think you now have realized you have to give it up. You have to let go of it. Some some sinful pleasure that feels great, but if you need to stay with God, if you're going to stay with God, you have to just give it up, cut ties with it. And that's difficult even if we're a child of the king, if we're a Christian, an active, living Christian. But if you're a backslider, the cost seems even steeper. Just like for Naomi. You see, for Naomi, to return as a widow without her son, she would have had no way to provide for herself. She would have been poor. And that wouldn't have been so bad in Israel. God had made provision in the law to allow for poor people to work for food, particularly by gleaning the harvest fields. It's very hard work. But Naomi's getting on in years. That hard work might be just too hard for her. And maybe that's where we're at this morning. We we, we know that the Christian way, the Christian life is the exact right road that we're supposed to go but we see it and we're thinking it's too difficult it's too hard we're maybe wondering is it worth the effort 
Well, my encouragement to you is to read a Christian biography. Read what other Christians have gone through in the pursuit of their faith and you'll find that the effort is very much worth it. If only Naomi could have reached that conclusion. Because uh, good news doesn't seem to last long for Naomi. And we're rattling our way through this passage. Uh, She seems to be depressed. She seems to be in despair. But if we dig a little deeper, we, we would find a fear of rejection in Naomi. She's afraid that the community that she has left would would turn her back on her, that wouldn't welcome her. She's afraid that God's blessing wouldn't extend to her. She's afraid that God has rejected her. And maybe that's where we're at this morning. We're under the shadow of rejection. It looks and it feels like depression. But if you push past the surface, you'll find it's that same fear. You're afraid that God has rejected you as well. That God has simply given up on you. It's at this moment that I want to remind you that God loves you. He hasn't given up on you. His love pursues you even now at this moment. Read the story of the lost sheep. That's the kind of love that God has for you. It's it's a love that pursues you. It doesn't give up on you no matter the context, no matter what you've done. But for Naomi, she's still in that state of rejection. And rejection repels. It just pushes people away. And you justify it by thinking that you're being selfless. That you don't want to bring people down with your misery. But it just isolates you. And that's what Naomi's trying to do. She's trying to isolate herself and push her daughters-in-law away. And Orpha, she... She, she, she tries to stay on, but in verse 14 she leaves. It's sad and it's heartbreaking, but she's done her time. But Ruth doesn't. Ruth clings to her. It's in verses 16 and 17 that Ruth says the best thing she could, that Naomi could hear. We'll read those two verses again. It says, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Those are some of the most striking verses in scripture because of who says them. It's Ruth, a woman from a pagan background who grew up worshipping idols and false gods. And she makes the most faith-driven declaration out of love. This is faith on fire, people. Faith on fire. And maybe that's what we need right now. We need to see somebody on fire for God. Because right now we're embering away. And that is the best cure. 
to see someone just so on fire for God, someone passionate about the Bible, someone zealous about prayer. It's infectious. And that's why meeting in church like this is so important. If we're on the edge of burnout, if we're on the edge of breakdown, we come and be with the people of God and we're encouraged by those who are excited about the things of God, even if at the time we're really not. And Ruth's fervent outburst gives Naomi enough resolve to travel home. And what did I find in verses uh, 20? Uh, in verses 19, rather, they find not, a, not rejection, but a warm reception. But the crowd, they don't, they're, they're not worried about Ruth. Ruth's this foreigner that's walking in with Naomi. They're not worried about Ruth at the minute. Their focus is only on their wayward citizen. They're asking, how is she? How is she getting on? But all Naomi can think about right now is anger. Bitter angerness. In fact, she wants to change her name from pleasant to bitterness to Mara. And catch what she says in verses 20 to 21. She seems to lay all the blame for her misfortune squarely at the feet of God. She blames God for making her this way. And often we're tempted to think like Naomi, tempted to think that if we live our lives as Christians, our lives should be really straightforward. No fuss, no mess, but in reality, sin makes a mess of our lives. Anger raises its head, pride sticks his neck out, lust runs amok. And even if we respond appropriately, we, we confess it to God, we repent, we say our sorries, we do our best to turn from these things and try our utmost best not to repeat these mistakes, we're still tempted to think like Naomi, but I've said sorry, God, just bless me. Just make my life better. That's what Naomi wants. She's come back home. Just make my life better, God. The reality is, though, God allows us, even if we're in the position of faith, we're a child of God, God doesn't force his way on anyone. He gives us the freedom to pursue sin if we want to. And he allows us not just to enjoy the pleasure of sin, which is short and fleeting, but it's there. But he allows us to go through the consequences of sin as well. For Naomi, sin was, the sin was leaving Bethlehem out of fear instead of staying and trusting in God. And now she's living with the consequence of that sin. She's empty. She's hollow. She's numb. This isn't God's fault. This is Naomi's own doing. And God is allowing her to go through this to teach her a, a very important lesson. To conclude, let's come back to that illustration of a marathon. Our lives are like this draw, long, drawn-out race. It's not about finishing first or even being fast. 
It's about following the course and sticking it out to the very end. And that requires effort, hard work, determination, discipline. And these things are okay and we're fine with them in a sporting context. Ah yeah, all of those words are lovely in a marathon. But when we try to apply them spiritually to our own lives, we're like, mm, not so much, God. No, I'm okay. But these words are what it takes to run the race for God. To do this thing called life with God. To be a Christian. It takes hard work. It takes effort. And we've all heard the phrase, God isn't looking for our faithfulness. Or rather, sorry. God is looking for our faithfulness, not our fruitfulness. We've all heard that phrase. Christian jargon. And it's that word faithfulness. Sometimes we think we know what it means, and maybe we do. But I've come across a fresh meaning for it. Effort. Faithfulness is effort. God blesses the effort, and he gives you the success. You just have to bring the effort. And right at the end of the chapter, God's perfect timing is on display. Naomi and Ruth arrive at the time of the barley harvest. Right, the right time for Ruth to head out to the fields to glean. The right time for her to meet Boaz. And from there, Naomi's bitterness, it turns into happy contentedness as she, at the end of the book, Spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, she's holding a baby. Folks, trust the course. If you have issues or questions with the course of your life, you speak to the designer of the marathon. You talk to God. He's only a prayer away. And with that, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to share God's word. And we thank you for this uh, opportunity to just glean, uh, glean from this passage of scripture, just to pick up the, the, the little threads that you've left for us to pull on. Father, we thank you for, for, for the help in the study, but we thank you for the help in the declaration of your word, which is your truth. And Father, I, I, I know some of the faces here, but Lord, you know all of them intimately. You know where they are with you on their journey alongside you. And Lord, maybe, maybe one of these landmarks, they identify with them. Father, I pray that they'll just, they'll, 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 they'll find where they're at. And Father, they'll look to you to get back on course. They'll look to you to put you back on the throne of their lives, to make you king of their life. Oh, Father, I pray that you'll do your work, Father, this morning. Father, we've done our bit. We give you all the praise and all the glory for uh, giving us the ability. Father, thank you for, to, for helping these dear people even just to listen and take on board whatever it is that you're saying to them. And Father... Even as this day goes on into eternity, let your still, small voice speak on. Father, just bless this time that's remaining together. We ask it in Jesus' name.